1: Hello, welcome to PSR People Speaking Rail. We are those people. I'm Mike Baudenbistel. i head of intermodal solutions here at Freightwaves, which is a media supported uh, data company. I'm joined by, uh, as always, with my colleague Joanna Marsh, who does the editorial writing uh, for Freightwaves on the rail industry. Uh, Joanna, you wrote up a few articles uh, this week, um, but I think the one that we should probably focus on is the one you did last Friday, uh, Freight Rail Stakeholders lay out Their Challenges Before Congress. I think it's the one that's going to be most related to um, our guest today, which is Chris John, who is American Chemistry Council uh, President and CEO. So this is a picture of, of, of your article there, a nice picture of, um, looks like a Union Pacific uh, a train on a, on a bridge. Any idea what body of water that is?
2: Ooh, you know, I don't know, but you know, our photographer, staff photographer Jim Allen, took that, and he's based in Texas. So, well, obviously, Union Pacific, so so somewhere, somewhere around Texas, maybe, um, if not, sort of in a border area. There's a description. I will follow up, maybe you know, sometime uh, in a later episode, which which body of water it is. But I, I think there's actually a description. That he has, which I didn't put it
1: in. Yeah, it does look like the Gulf Coast. Like it looks like there's something off offshore there with uh, some kind of drilling rig or something. But um, but but anyway. So what did you take away from that that hearing um, before before Congress?
2: Yeah, yeah. So on one hand, I don't think there was anything particularly new that was um, mentioned in the hearing in terms of like what major issues uh, various stakeholders are looking at. Um, I think probably the, the main thing though is that um, you know this is kind of the the probably I'm not sure but like I feel like it's the first um, congressional hearing where that that featured uh, several stakeholders within the industry but but also um, where it wasn't necessarily rail sa- safety as being the the number one priority. Um, so, you know, there was also, uh, you know, some, some talk about, um, rail service and, uh, and some op- other sort of operational issues such as, you know, whether, uh, there should be, um, a limit on train legs, um, of course the train crew, um, size issue, which is kind of related again to rail safety. So, uh, so it, so it, it was interesting in the sense that it was still rail safety related, but still kind of touched on a broader, um, uh, broader range of issues, and um, and that's kind of I, I feel like <laughs> that's kind of where things are are kind of heading uh, in terms of you know uh, 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 public officials talking about rail stuff. So
1: yeah, I mean certainly there's plenty of issues outside of rail safety, and it's worth mentioning the rail is a safe way to move um, any kind of bulk products on the surface of the of the earth. Uh, I, I think maybe the per- perception is that railroads are less safe than they, they actually are given all that's happened uh this year um you know, had an interesting quote in there from chuck baker ceo of the american short line railroad association he su- suggests that we should hire back retirees uh, and allow them to keep their retirement benefits sounds like it's not it's not a bad idea maybe not a long-term um you know solution to the, to the labor issue but um a- an interesting I- idea
2: yeah yeah that was a little that was a little different um so it, it's nice to you know it's nice to have like little tidbits of that um because, uh, for better or for worse, uh, you know, a lot of the, the the public discussion is is kind of um, uh, I don't want to say repetitive, but just you know, it's it, you kind of know what to expect. So it's, it's nice to have a little, you know, a uh, little detail like that
1: um, related to. Yeah, things. I hadn't heard that. I hadn't heard that one before. It's an interesting concept. Um, so with that, uh, I encourage everyone to go check out that article and then the other other articles that you have up on the site. say you know a few every every week. Um, good way to stay informed on the rail industry. And, uh, you know, with that, I want to allow enough time for our, our guests. Our guest today is Chris John. He's president and CEO of the American Chemistry Council. Uh, that's a company or organization that, um, I'll let him explain it, but it is an advocacy group for, you know, chemical companies, a lot of which are the big uh, shippers on the, uh, the freight rail industry. And, uh, you know, a lot of those companies really rely on the railroad Industry to get their uh, products to um, to to market because they're in such bulk quantities, really not terribly modal modally competitive. And as worth mentioning, we have a sonar chart on, on chemical carloads. It shows um, over the past you know several years if we can get that up, which it's shown that a chemical uh, carload has been one of the growth areas in uh, freight rail transportation. Part of that's uh, related to. Um, the base feedstock, a lot of the, the chemicals have natural gases of ba- base feedstock. U.S. has a competitive advantage in that in that area. So promises to be um, sort of a growth area for um, a time the time to come. Uh, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us on uh, People Speaking Rail. Thank you for having me.
3: Good to be with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want you to give us just a little bit of an overview of um, the American Chemistry Council for those that are not uh, familiar and, and how it's related to, to rail transportation.
3: Sure, absolutely. So our our members are the leading companies in the business of chemistry. And uh, those are large, as you said, large publicly traded corporations, global corporations, down to small businesses and everything in between. And these folks are the scientists and engineers who make modern life possible and make the world healthier, safer, more sustainable, more productive. So everything that our members make goes into the manufacturing supply chain. So that's everything for electric vehicle batteries or solar panels to chips and semiconductors. And uh, so we represent their interests uh, in the public policy space, whether it's here in Washington, D.C., internationally or at the state and local level. And, and you presented at the
1: hearing that um, Joanna was describing there, the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee. What was your message?
3: Our message there was, you know, as you said, it was about supply chain issues and the fact that our members continue to have uh, transportation uh, challenges and problems. And our survey data shows that. And so while the pandemic is officially over, uh, the challenges that we had throughout the pandemic are not over. And so specific to what you're talking about here, uh, we still have rail challenges that need to be uh, fixed. And we have structural problems with getting the service that our members deserve. And so we were advocating for both Congress and the SDB to take some action that would help improve rail service for our members going forward.
1: On that point, I mean, what type of service issues, um, you know, are you seeing? Maybe more specifically, I mean, have you have you seen things like railroads cut from service from five days to three days, or just a congestion in certain
3: areas? Or just any more any more detail? Sure, happy to share that with you. So, uh, interestingly enough, uh, while we have seen improvement in other modes of transportation um, and getting closer to pre-pandemic levels of service, we we are challenged to get that same level of improvement. On the rail side, so for example, thirty percent of our members saw uh, service get even worse in the second half of last year, uh, rather than getting better. And we still have three quarters of our members who say that rail service is not back to where it was uh, compared to pre-pandemic levels. So, yeah, you know, we've had challenges with embargoes, for example, and I, I know you all have talked about that in the past. And so whether it's a certain railroad going from five embargoes in 2017 to over a thousand last year, or another railroad that embargoed the entire state of California, which by itself is the fifth largest economy in the world. And so while that's only one embargo, that's a, there's a huge impact, particularly when that state has the biggest ports in the country as well. And so our industry, chemical and plastics industry, is winning on a global level and we're a massive exporter and we have a big trade surplus. And so that impacts manufacturing jobs both here in the United States, but also the prosperity all across the globe. So we've had significant challenges with rail over the past few years.
1: Yeah, it's certainly critical for the for the U S economy to have, um, you know, your, your industry, you know, performing well, having the trans- transportation infrastructure it needs. Um, you know the the, the railroads, um, you know, sort of blame the the labor situation for a lot of these these service issues. Is is that your perception as well, or do you attribute it more to changes in operating procedures, trying to run trains too long, et cetera?
3: Yeah. So uh, somebody a lot smarter than I called precision scheduled railroading, uh, doing less with less, and so I think that's that's been a long term challenge. Uh, I think, for the railroads and certainly for our members, I could tell you you know, what the impact on us has been. And so whether it's cutting staff, eliminating switch yards, slashing customer service resources, I mean, a lot of times it's really hard for our members to get a live body on the phone who can do something to help them. And uh, it really, to us, indicates the lack of competitive service that our members receive. Three quarters of our members are captive shippers, which, as you know, is means they only have one choice of railroad, and so uh, we're looking as much as we can from to or to sorry the STB and Congress to do things that would provide competition in rail service uh, as required under the Staggers Act, and it's our hope that that would drive better service from railroads. So there's a lot there. I'm happy to happy to unpack all of
1: that for you. Yeah, I think that makes, I think the the next sort of logical thing is um, you're looking to the STB for some help. Now they finally have this CPKC deal behind it. Now that's been approved. That's probably been taking a lot of their their resources, maybe all their resources. You know, what would you like to see them, uh, you know, focus in on uh, now?
3: So you're right. There's just, you know, it's a small agency with limited resources, and so, you know, one of the things we want to do is make sure that Congress gives them the resources they need to perform their regulatory function. But specific to what we'd like to see them do is we'd like to see them act on the reciprocal switching proposal that's been pending there for seven years. And so we'd like for them to move forward. As I said, real industry is not competitive. Uh in the you know, the rates that our members receive uh over the past 15 years are reflective of that. So you look at a study that we did from 2004 to 2019 uh, competitive service rates increased 24 percent non-competitive rates increased 230 percent so again it's our feeling that is uh, reciprocal switching can have some of the benefits that it has already had in Canada where they've had that in place for a century but the two railroad major railroads up there are thriving you mentioned the merger uh, they have the opportunity to compete to expand their footprint here in the United States. And so, uh, again, we think that more competition among railroads is not only good for us and shipper interest, but to be really direct about it, we think it's in the railroad's interest. So their market share as a percentage of overall, um, the transportation pie has declined over the past few years. And it's our feeling that more competition will cause them to have to invest and earn our business going forward, and that there are actually growth opportunities for them. So our industry is growing. We have made huge investments over the past decade and plan to going forward. So we already ship over uh, 2 million carloads a year, and we expect that that will increase over the next decade by at least 120,000 carloads going forward as we have more capacity come online in the United States. So we would like to give more business to the railroads going forward. So we're a growth opportunity for them, but it's only if they earn that business. And we think it's through competition that'll make that happen.
2: Okay, um, and I was I was kind of curious. Do you um w- would you have a sense of like maybe perhaps like what percentage of of chemical freight you might consider to be captive to one railroad or, um, just to get a sense of of how important, uh reciprocal switching is for your membership?
3: Yeah. So uh, we, about three quarters of our member facilities are captive facilities. So we've only got 25% that uh, has access to more than one railroad. I'll give you an example. We've got a member in the Southeast region, Mid-Atlantic Southeast region. And so because the chemical industry is globally competitive, and uh, our chief competition, for example, comes from the Chinese. And Chinese imports coming into uh, ocean ports in the southeast region of the United States have access, because of those ports, to multiple railroads. But we have domestic production here that competes with that, that it only has access to one railroad, so therefore has poorer service and much higher rates. So we're actually, this has been the unintended consequence of creating more business for Chinese companies versus American companies. So that's just one small example.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, um, well, I guess you know, if we kind of switch over to, um, you know, to to rail service, and um, I know that you've mentioned, you know, uh, that you've supported uh, having railroads meet minimum service standards. I guess for for you, what how would you define good service? Um, and what do you think those standards should be? Um, and I guess if perhaps well as well, um, I know that some shippers have mentioned sort of the first mile, last mile piece. So if you could sort of uh, talk about that as well, if, if, if that is uh, one of the um, standards that you're looking at.
3: Yes, yes, indeed. So I'll be, maybe I'll take the second question first in terms of uh, what we need is meaningful, what we like for the STB to have is meaningful data on first mile, last mile service. As we see where that's where a lot of the issues are. And there isn't a lot of transparency for either us as a customer or the government to see what's actually happening and for the government to be able to have information that is actionable in a um, quick enough time to make a difference. It's not enough to have information, you know, months in the rear view mirror that you can't do anything about. So, We'd really like to have that information in place so that the only place, because there's no competition, the only place we can go is to the SDP for redress, and they need to have the information uh, available to them as quickly as possible to address service issues. So that's that's number one. And then in terms of um, uh, service standards, you know, so the common carrier obligation right now is is not you know well defined, and there was some conversation between. Uh, SCB Chair Oberyn and the committee last year about that. And uh, the chair indicated he would be open to talking to Congress to making uh, some of that more clear. But I think what most people don't understand and even folks on the Hill don't understand is, you know, in the uh, contracts that we have with the railroads, unlike any other service we contract for, like we uh, outsource janitorial services at a uh, member facility and the floors are not swept then the you know the service doesn't get paid. That's not how it works in the railroads. And so what we would like to have is some minimum service standards in those contracts so that they are more equitable. Again, because there's a monopoly service, our members uh, are treated as such and don't really have ability to go across the street. You know, if you don't like your iPhone, you can go across the street and get yourself an Android. We don't have that ability to do that. And so we need some minimum service standards in those contracts. So we have the ability to uh, address problems when things go wrong. And unfortunately, all too often, things go wrong.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, that's, um makes a lot of sense. Uh, fortunately, I was able to make it back here. Um, I, I guess another question is, um, you know, this just on accessorials. I mean, that's been something that's been contentious between shippers and, and railroads. And you make a good point about how just um, the, the rail cars in the chemical industry owned mostly by, either your members or they lease them from GATX or somebody. Um, can you talk about a little bit of how you'd like to see that the accessorial issue be more balanced between shippers and, and railroads?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, quite simply, it just needs to be a two-way street. So, you know, when the Sagers Act passed, uh, you know, 43 years ago, it was a completely different world. And we've got a regulatory system that has um, not, that and a contract system that has not adapted to the new reality. And so uh, if we're the ones delaying progress, then uh, there's already a system in place to be held accountable for that. And if the railroads are the ones uh, delaying or causing problems with the fluidity of the system and getting our products to where they need to be, both inputs and outputs, then uh, there ought to be some redress mechanisms for our members uh, to access. And that we think, again, will give uh, railroads an incentive a financial incentive to make sure that uh, things move as smoothly as possible. So it's quite simply a fairness issue and a two-way street. And again, we want to give more business to the railroads, and we will, but we want to be able to uh, hold them accountable when things go wrong. Yeah, you should
1: not be the only one who's, who faces a, a potential penalty um, if, if if they yeah you
0: know,
3: yeah. yeah exactly. It's a, it's a really you know we we learned these concepts in kindergarten, right? It's just you know everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten, so. It's uh, it's a, a simple fairness concept.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you also about the, some of the, the rail safety, um, you know, Ab rail safety act and this other piece of legislation coming out. And just you know, what do you think is ultimately going to to change there, if if anything? I mean, you think it's going to be you know, different standards for for tank cars or or, or rail cars in general? Just, just any thoughts there?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's hard to forecast exactly where we end up since we have so many steps in the process to go, and we really have taken. The first step here, right, is we've got a a bipartisan bill out of the committee, which we have supported, and we think um, they are taking a good first step with that legislation that can continue to be improved throughout the Senate and House process, and we hope that they can get something done on a bipartisan basis going forward. Look, we know that rail is by far the safest way to ship over land. Uh, We want to give more business to the railroads. And uh, even though it's very safe now, we'd like to see it made safer. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of discussion about, as you said, tank car standards and the timing to do that. We are supportive of moving from 111 tank cars, for example, to 117 uh, 117 tank cars. When we are able to do so, um, the data we've got from the manufacturers indicates, you know, the earliest you could do that is the middle of 2028. But we are willing to move ahead as quickly as possible as, as supply allows. And so I think, you know, that we'd expect that something uh, on those lines would be in a final law if it got to that stage. And, um, you know, we, we could, we will continue to be a constructive part of this process as it moves forward.
2: Are there any elements, um, that you can think of like within the, within the bill as it currently exists, of course, with the, you know, with the caveat that things might change, um, that, uh, that you appreciate having within the bill or are there uh, is there anything that you would like to see perhaps if not, you know, removed, you know, just uh, not I- included in the bill, um, you know, going forward?
3: Yeah. So they, uh, you know, we appreciate uh, both Chairman Kinwell and uh, Senator Vance. We've worked closely with their staff and we had raised a number of concerns in the past and they addressed uh, most of those issues and so we're we we think it's taken a good first step. And from the original draft to what came out of committee, we anticipate that we would continue to make progress going forward. I think um, I think you know we need to do we need to make sure the rail safety overall gets addressed. There's a lot of attention to hazardous materials transferza- uh, transportation, and appropriately so. But again, I think when you see the number of derailments at a thousand, right, and that's you know three a day basically. Uh, and I think there's there's been two just in the last 24 hours. I saw Senator Brown from Ohio tweet about that. So I th- I think fundamentally making sure that we reduce the number of derailments, and we're very you know we at ACC are members, as you might expect, the business of chemistry is very focused on science. So we're science driven, uh, risk driven, data driven. And I think as we go forward, let's look at those factors that lead to derailments, and let's have a risk. Based approach to addressing that, I think that's the appropriate approach. There's there's a lot of attention to issues, uh, but I think if we if we follow the data and follow the science, that's where we really ought to dedicate our our resources and our our thoughts on this issue.
2: That actually sounds similar to uh, what I hear from the railroads <laughs> as well in terms of the, the data driven aspect.
3: Yeah, and, it, and look, I would say on on this issue that um, safety is the top priority. For us and for the railroads. Again, it's the safest mode there is. And you guys know this. If you you move uh from tank cars to tank trucks, you put four trucks on the road, right? So there are driver shortage issues, there are congestion issues. So and we have infrastructure issues on our side where we're set we, we are set up to ship uh through bulk transportation. We are set up to ship by rail. So we don't want to move to truck if we don't have to, because again, rail safer, we're set up that way. And, uh, but I think we ought to, we ought to, again, our industry is very science driven, risk driven. And, uh, so that makes a lot of sense to us in this situation as well. On
1: that topic of modal competitiveness, you guys, um, support the ship it act, which I guess would increase the gross vehicle weight. So, so potentially they would give you a little bit more, a better option on the, on the highway when you needed it. Um, You know what's the status of 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 that and any other thoughts on the It Act?
3: Yeah, so you know we're we're as you said supportive of the Shipit Act. We hope that it will uh, move forward. Again, it's a it's got bipartisan support, and it's our hope that that can move forward in this Congress. I know that uh, there's uh, uh, in in House next week the TNI committee is marking up a supply chain bill. I don't know if this is something that can catch a ride on that or not, but I think. As we look at this supply chain and the centrality of our industry to all of manufacturing. So what we make goes into the entire manufacturing supply chain. Everything um, that is manufactured starts with us. And so if we have problems, that ripples throughout the supply chain. It drives shortages. It drives inflation. And so it's our hope that we can make all modes of transportation, and we use all of them, as efficient as possible. And, you know, by adding weight, uh, interestingly enough, if you add that extra axle to the truck, you actually are spreading that weight on that extra axle. It's actually, uh, better for the roadways, uh, rather than, you know, you'd think, and you would just think, um, Hey, we're putting more weight. That's a weight. That's bad for the roads. It's actually not the case. So, um, look, if, if, um, you know if we're going to achieve what we want to achieve in this country the Biden administration has ambitious goals on the green economy a manufacturing here and more in the United States then uh, you know we're going to have to be more efficient as a country more efficient as a supply chain to make that happen it's an interesting nuance on the added
1: uh w- add, added the extra axle I, I i didn't know that um but, but really interesting stuff there um it's really all the time that we have but but thanks so much for for joining us today on on, on PSR and, and how people how can people get in touch with the uh, the ACC uh if they would like to
3: uh, so you can go to AmericanChemistry.com and you can find us on all the various social media uh, outlets as well. And I just say, look, it, you know, leave you with a closing message. If we want to make more here in the United States of America, we need to move more chemistry. And that's what we're looking to do. So thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. Great. Well, thank you. Hope everyone has a great day.
2: Thank you.